Hello, everybody. Good morning. Hey, I know that uh, Jennifer just prayed, but do you mind if I pray? I really need the help. And if you could do me a favor and pray for me as I pray for you, I'd appreciate it. Um, God, or what a hard text. <laughs> thank you for the trust of the elders here, but thank you for the love of your people and the love of your word. Your word is bold, it's powerful, and it brings life. So we pray for life to come about this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. So I don't know about all of you, but I am enjoying this return to normalcy with the restrictions um, easing up, um, the vaccines rolling out, and being able to put down your mask finally. I'm a, I'm a hugger, if you don't know that. I like to like bear hug people till they can't breathe and just like make sure that they can't talk for the next sentence. Because uh, around this time last year, it was crazy, right? It was absolute nuts. Um, I can't tell you how many times, I'm sure you all can relate, like going online and seeing countless memes of 2020 being described with grumpy cats and dumpster fires, right? And there's so many of them. It was a tough year for everyone. But besides 2020 being described as dumpster fires and grumpy cats, Time Magazine described 2020 as a year of polarization where people and their grumpy cats were at each other's throats of what seemed to be like every issue, right? I mean, it didn't matter Trump or Biden, mask or no mask, pro-vaccines, anti-vaccines, police or uh, anti-police, you name it. I was even reading a thread, a comic book thread, on who would win in a fight, pirates or ninjas. And you wouldn't believe like the visceral comments that came out when they were debating one another. It was absolutely ridiculous. In my mind, I'm going, guys, what are we talking about here? We're talking about pirates versus ninjas. Why are you getting so mad? Because we all know that ninjas would win, right? It's obvious. See, polarization is the air we breathe in now, isn't it? And we all can feel it. And there are some things in Christianity, though, that also causes some polarization. You know, one of the most polarizing chapters in the entire Bible is Romans chapter 1. It is the chapter that talks about the wrath of God. It's a well-known text that gets a lot of negative press. In fact, it made national headlines when a church in Topeka, Kansas, the state where I grew up, went to a park full of gay people and held up signs that read, Gays are worthy of death, Romans 1.32. Well, let me ask you all this question. Is Romans 1 the message that Christians believe in? Does God's wrath manifest itself into Christians holding picket signs and shaming people into repentance? So we're going to deal with that question, and I'm going to make the main point here into a question for today's text, and it's this. How is the wrath of God manifested on the unrighteous? How is the wrath of God manifested in the unrighteous? So we're going to answer that question as we go forward. Well, let's go through this text, specifically verses 18 to 32, and see as a church that there can be profound hope in one of the most polarizing chapters in the entire Bible. So that in return, we can give profound hope 
to a polarized world. So a little bit of context here. Um, see, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church. And the Roman church is interesting. is composed of both non-Jewish and Jesus-following Jews. And guess what happens when you put two completely different pe- people's groups together? It's going to be like dinner time at my house. It's going to be a madhouse. There's going to be arguing, throwing. There's food all over the floor. This is a crazy place. They were arguing like crazy, and there were tons of disagreements. So Paul had to write a letter to this church telling them and reminding them of what's truly important, the gospel, so that they can be unified and be on mission together. And so after verse 16 of chapter 1, saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and to the non-Jewish person, we read this in verse 17. Read with me verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Um, Did you guys know that this was the very verse that God used as TNT to blow up the cement wall of Martin Luther's soul so that the gospel could be clearly revealed to him? See, the verse doesn't say the righteous shall live by faith in doing religious stuff, right? It doesn't say the righteous shall live by faith and by being Mr. and Mrs. God at all together. The verse says that the righteous shall live by what? By faith, right? By faith. You see, this verse is talking about a righteousness that is apart from you, outside of you, like an alien from outer space. It's coming down as a gift from God to you. It is not found inside of you nor from you. It is completely alien to you. You know, um, this text so affected Luther that not only did he become a Christian, but he temporarily, check this out, he temporarily transformed into a California surfer dude. Because as he famously writes in his commentaries this on this verse, quote, Whoa! This is a true quote. Whoa! You mean the righteousness by which I am saved is not mine? I don't know if he said it all, all the way like that, but... He did say, whoa, because verse 17 is powerful, whoa text. Not just for Luther, but I would argue for every believer in Jesus. This verse should cause us all to collectively say, whoa. And that's why the Apostle Paul is going to spend the next few chapters unpacking what that one verse means for us. That the righteous shall live by faith. And the rest of chapter 1, though, our text today, is dedicated to explaining why salvation is necessary so that all sorts of sinners can be saved by Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. So Paul continues his thought out with our sermon text today. Read with me verse 18. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, Paul is saying that the truth about God is known to mankind, but there's this 
willful suppression of that truth. But what does that mean exactly, right? You know, in his commentary, Dr. R.C. Sproul illustrates his suppression as like this giant steel spring which needs to take the full weight and force of a human just to press and hold it down. And even if you just let it for a second, it'll just shoot right up like a rocket. This is the severity that the text is talking about of the severity of the amount of suppression that happens when men suppress the truth about God. But how so, right? How so? Because in verse 19 and 20, for, his, for what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The truth is plain. It's crystal clear. You know, one of the leaders of the New Atheist Movement, uh, the brilliant Christopher Hitchens, would often say in his lectures, where's the evidence? If God is known, then show us the evidence. Well, according to Romans 1, we don't have to look far because the evidence for God is found everywhere. Take, take beauty, for example. I mean, if you ever felt so utterly dumbstruck from the beauty of the warm glow of a sunset or got punched square in the face by the majesty as you approach a snow-covered mountain, um, if you were like me and cry like a baby as you saw your newborn baby come out, so there's two babies in the room. So what a beautiful moment for my wife. And if your soul wanted to sing to the heavens as you saw your spouse, the one you're going to spend the rest of your life with, coming down the aisle. Friend, each one of those, each one of those is a portrait of beauty that points to a divine painter behind them all. Because let's be real, see, when you and I experience those realities, when we experience those, we intuitively know, intuitively, that there is something transcendent, bigger than ourselves as we embrace those realities. That it can't just be mere firings in the brain and dopamine attaching to receptors causing us a warm fuzzies. It's not something so base, right? It's more because if the material world is all there is, if this is, if this is it, I dare you, I triple dog dare you elementary school, that when Valentine rolls around or when the anniversary day comes around, give your spouse a long, big hug, like deeply embrace them, and then look into their eyes and say, baby, I love you, but you know, love's not real. It's just an illusion purely composed of the chemicals and nerve synapses in my brain. Right, you're gonna get bonked in the head after that. That's not romantic at all. You're gonna throw away the flowers. But what about, what about the coherence of morality? Um, Well-known author C.S. Lewis writes this in one of his essays on morality. Quote, If good and better are terms deriving their sole meaning from the ideology of each people, then of course ideologies themselves cannot be better or worse than one another. Unless the measuring rod is independent of the things measured, we can do no measuring. See, Without the measuring rod, an, an objective standard saying this is right, this is wrong, then everything else is merely opinion. It's all opinion. 
So the next time you watch the History Channel and hear about all the atrocities that the Nazis did, just say to yourself, you know, evil doesn't really exist. Um, that's just my opinion. Uh, what they were doing, I, I believe, was evil. Um, but I'm sure to the Nazis, they held a different opinion, that they thought that what they were doing was pretty good. You know, it's just a difference in opinion. Now, is that satisfying? Absolutely not. The final thing I'll touch on, on truth being clear, is the complexity of creation. Uh, I was talking to Jennifer Mertz a month ago, and she shared with me how she would just pick up a leaf and marvel at the intricate details of the web-like veins that travel the course of its body to provide nutrients. And like that level of detail absolutely outstanded her. And, um, and that was from a single leaf. I was like, man, that was awesome, Jennifer. Um, now, now, I want you to pause here for a minute, and I want you to imagine with me. Let's get creative. I want you to blow up that amount of detail, that amount of complexity, by like a thousand times, all right? And you will get a hint, just a small smidgen, of how complex a single cell is in your body. Did you know a single cell is composed of a hundred over 100,000 moving parts that perform a 1,000 different functions every single second. And now take that complex cell and then put that in your hand. Look at your hand. And did you know that there's over a trillion cells in your one hand? Now take your hand and put it in the context of your body. And then you have a trillion on top of a trillion cells uh, performing a gazillion different functions every single second. Now put your body in the environment and how complex that is. From the millions of leaves on the trees to the molecules found in the air that we breathe, how amazingly complex it all is and yet how everything coalesces together like a beautiful song in a symphony for the flourishing of life. Isn't that amazing? And those were just three examples of the truth being clear. Time would fail us to go over human dignity, justice, free will, the reliability of our senses, and human rights, all of which are not rooted in this material world. Like, you, you can't use a scientific method and study those things mentioned in a lab. And yet, we all live like they're absolutely true, like it's plain and clear. Listen, at the, at the end of the day, everyone who's living, breathing, and thinking, when they die and meet the man upstairs, no one's going to say, hey, God, I, I didn't know you are real. Well, why didn't you make yourself more obvious? That excuse, according to verse 20, is not going to hold up because no one is going to have an excuse. You know, I remember uh, having a conversation with one of my be best friends who doesn't believe in God. And we were going back and forth in, on all those intellectual arguments for and against God. And I finally said, hey, man, what would it take for you to believe that there is a God out there? And he told me, Sam, I will believe if he just shows up right in front of me and tells me that he is God. And I'm going, oh, man, I can't do that. <laughs> all right, let's move on to our water gun fight. All right, let's keep going. But here, I, I thought about that. 
And this is how amazingly patient and merciful God is. That he so desires everyone to reach repentance that he actually fulfilled my best friend's wish. That God sent the best evidence he possibly could into this world, his son, who is the exact imprint of his nature, to tell people plain and clear that he is God, that he is the way and the truth and the light that we just read and sang. And yet with the most solid evidence to ever come into this world, God himself, people still rejected him, even to the point of killing him on a tree. Because if we're perfectly honest, right, if we're perfectly honest, it's not about evidence that makes a person reject God. It's really about the heart, isn't it? That's the real issue here. And like a sword, the Bible cuts to that real issue in verses 21 to 22. Reading with me. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, the real issue is not knowing God, but it's rather the heart not honoring or giving thanks to him, a.k.a. worshiping. And as people refuse to worship and drink from the fountain of all life and truth, their souls will shrivel up and their mind will become foolish and their hearts become dark. And when people's minds become foolish and their hearts darken, the next step is verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The darkened human heart and foolish mind are prone to do an exchange. An exchange. Like going to the bank, exchanging coins for bills, people will exchange the glory of the immortal God, the God of all creation, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and exchange the worship due to him for worship of little g God substitutes found in his creation. See, whether you're religious or irreligious, the human heart was made to worship. Best-selling author Dr. Paul Tripp describes worship as this. When people think of worship, they think of Sunday morning, a gathering of fellow believers for singing, offering, and preaching. But worship is not just a religious function. It is a human function. Worship is something everyone does every day. Worship is that inner desire for wonder, amazement, and awe that every human being possesses. It is that craving to be fulfilled. It is that constant search for life. It is not wanting or wanting personal meaning and purpose. It's the drive to look to someone or something to give you identity. It's the universal hunger for inner peace. It's that lifelong hunt for God. See, the issue here in Romans 1 is not, is your heart worshiping? It's, what is your heart worshiping? Is your lifelong hunt for meaning, significance, and joy found in the biblical God or a small G-God substitute? And right here is the apex moment of today's text. 
you know, that part right before the bomb's about to explode. Because right after verse 23, we will get the answer to our question left lingering from verse 18. How is God's wrath manifested on the unrighteous? How is God's wrath manifested to those who worship God's substitutes? Verse 24. Therefore, therefore, after all the stuff that we just went over, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, God's wrath is manifested on the unrighteous, not by him holding some sort of lightning bolt up in the air, smiting people, going, you messed up, you messed up, you messed up. Nor is it just some future judgment that we learned about last week in Revelation that Dan preached on. God's wrath is already here. It's being poured forth and revealed now on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And how does it come? It comes through verse 24. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. And you'll see his wrath again here in the text. Read with me verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women who are consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then finally, you'll also see it in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Listen, God is in the business of love. And he is going to give everyone over to worship what they ultimately love most. And so if your ultimate love is not set on him, fine, fine. He's going to give you over to worship what you love most. This is the wrath of God. If a person's penultimate love is sex and their own lust, he will give it over to them. If a person's main identity is wrapped in a certain lifestyle or status, he will give it over to them. If a person finds their true significance and security or a certain ability and career, he will give it over to them to worship. And if their true joy is found in earthly pleasure or a substance to keep them high, he will give it over to them. God's not going to fight with people over those, nor force any person to worship him. Hear closely. God is not holding people back from doing what they really want to do. He will give to each person over to those things they love the most so that they can worship freely to their heart's desire, even if it's to their own peril. The renowned secular novelist David Foster Wallace, who was described by the LA Times to be the most influential and innovative writers of the past 20 years, describes the wrath of God in Romans 1 perfectly in his commencement speech given to Kenyon College. I'm going to read you this quote. 
In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never have more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, end quote. See, David Foster Wallace hits a nail on its head when he describes what it looks like for God to give people over to what they worship. That worshiping those false gods will eat you alive. And we all know this personally. Like, after that pleasure fades away when you're done with that chocolate mousse cake, or when Christmas morning is done and all the presents are open, or when that special someone loses that allure, or when that raise comes in that you're looking forward to the whole time and you still want more, it will never be enough. Worshiping those things will be like the slow spiral down to hell, eating you alive. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. This is the wrath of God manifested on the unrighteous. Um, you know, when I was uh, in college, I worked at this teens club, nightclub, uh, where teens would come and play video games, watch movies, play pool, and just chill till like midnight. And I remember there was this one night where I was sitting down at a table reading my Bible, and one of the teens came up with a surprised look going, wait, wait Sam, is, is that a Bible? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. And they were absolutely shocked to find out that I was a Christian because I treated him so nice. And he knew that I knew that he was gay. And that started this whole conversation as he sat down with me and he told me about his story of how Christians would shame him and make him feel so terrible. And he cited that church in Topeka as an example. And as he was talking, I asked him, hey man, do you want to just like read what the Bible has to say about this? And he agreed. And so we went over this text, Romans 1. And we read how God is not going to fight with anybody to, and he's going to give over to people what they want to worship. That he'll give over to people what they love most. So if, it's, if their primary identity is in their sexual identity, he'll give it over to them. He will give to each person what they love most. And then we ended uh, up reading verse 32, um, the verse that was picketed on. Read with me verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, people love their sins so much that they not only will do them, but they even applaud 
at those who participate in them. These are the people, the unrighteous, that are worthy of death. And so I told the teen, I told him, you know those picketers outside? Outside the park, they technically, technically had a theologically correct statement. But what they failed to do is flip the page and read the very first verse of chapter 2. Read with me at the first verse of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We practice the very same things. Those picketers should turn the sign around on themselves. Better yet, we should all turn that picket sign around on ourselves and pronounce the same judgment as we do others. We live as though God is not our ultimate love, the center of our everyday worship. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? We are all in the hot seat. We are all under the wrath of God. And so, going back to the conversation with the teen, we ended that night with the sweetest verse ever. Verse 4. Verse 4, read me, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God doesn't shame people into repentance. God doesn't guilt people into repentance. It is, it is his verse 4, his kindness that leads people into repentance. And that's what Christians should be marked by as they engage with other broken sinners. Kindness. Kindness. So dear Christian, remember God's kindness towards you. Because God's kindness to you, to you isn't manifested by pithy sayings on a Hallmark card. God's kindness to you is manifested to you through a real person, his son Jesus. Because as we did an exchange, as we exchanged the glory of God for lies and for lesser God's substitutes, the perfect one, the one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, Jesus Christ, does an exchange with us. See, we exchange the glory of God for lies, but Jesus exchanges his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness onto us. And in return, he gets all our rebellion, all our unrighteousness, all our sin onto himself and suffers the full weight and penalty of God's wrath, the hell inside and the hell outside. That is how kind God is to you. The kindness of God manifested in the greatest exchange ever in the history of mankind. And if you are a Christian, 
you are the beneficiary of that exchange. You are now marked by God's kindness. And if that's true, you can't help but extend that same kindness to fellow sinners, especially to those who look nothing like you. And if you believe that, I invite you here in a moment to have communion with us and celebrate God's kindness. So I'm going to pray, and the server and the worship team will come up, and afterwards we're going to celebrate together. How we do communion here at Crossway is that we have um, a cup and crackers up here. You can come up uh, during the song, grab one, return to your seats. We're going to celebrate together. So let's pray. Um, God, we are all broken here. We're all in need of mercy. But you're so patient with us. Even in our sin and our brokenness, you show kindness to us. You don't shame us or guilt us into believing. You show us your heart. Thank you. And so as we celebrate communion, help us remind that message to us. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Family, be reminded that as you take this bread, that God didn't give us an essay. He didn't give us a Hallmark card. He gave his son to break his body for us because of the wrath we deserve. So remember his kindness as you eat the bread. His body didn't, just didn't break. His blood was actually spilt. There was death that happened because of our sin. But of God's kindness, Jesus took it all. So as we drink, remember God's kindness to you.